Hello, welcome back to God's Pathway to Life for you. I'm your host, Dave. Today we're talking about Ephesians chapter 5. But before I actually get into Ephesians chapter 5, I decided to go ahead and uh, play a sermon from Todd W. White at South Heights Baptist Church. He talks about Ephesians chapter 5, and so we're going to go ahead and listen to his sermon before we actually get into it. So this podcast is going to be the sermon from Todd W. White, and then the next podcast we're going to get into chapter 5. So I hope you enjoy the audio clip, and remember when it's over, it's over. And so uh, remember to say something nice to somebody you don't know. Bye. Here tonight, take your Bible, please, and open it in your New Testament to the book of Ephesians, chapter 5. Ephesians, chapter 5. We have completed our study verse by verse through the, go- through the uh, gospel Sunday morning. Ephesians, Sunday night, sorry. Sometimes it all runs together. We've completed our study in chapter 4 of Ephesians. And we were introduced in that chapter to what is called the worthy walk, which is discussed all the way through verse 2 also of chapter 6. And for the past several weeks, we've been emphasizing the fact that at the point of salvation, you become a brand new person. You are not what you were before. Praise the Lord. Amen? The Bible says that when you got saved, you received a new life. You were, tra- you were translated by the power of God from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, capital L, and his name is Jesus. You were given life. You received righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, an inheritance, a citizenship, a master. You receive freedom. You receive peace and fellowship and power and unity and joy and the Holy Spirit. And folks, you receive the absolute ability to love and give love. And that is the theme of chapter 5. In chapter 4, verse 1, it says, I therefore, Paul writing, this prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. Now that means we have been called by God to walk. That's a beautiful Bible word. It means to have as our manner of life, just living every single day, practicing the presence of Jesus. You know, we have this idea, and I don't know why Baptists do this, but that we, we get this idea in our Baptist churches that walking with Jesus is a walking alongside of, and I suppose to some degree that's true. But it's really Him walking in us. Him walking in us. And we've been called by God to walk, to live, to have as our manner of life a worthy walk. That just means a life that is befitting whom we are in Jesus Christ. Now in verses 17 through 32 of chapter 4, we saw that the Apostle Paul describes in detail what the worthy walk entails, and he continues that theme in chapter 5. In verses 17 through 32, he says, we're to put off the old man, that's in verse 22, and put on the new man. It's a choice that we make. make. Notice verse 22. That you put off, it's a choice, concerning the former conversation, that means manner of life, the old man which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. And then in verse 24, he says, And put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Here we see the biblical principle of replacement. Never take anything out of your life that you don't replace with God's best. If you do not replace what you take out that shouldn't be there with God's best, the stuff you took out will come back with more. And it will be far worse than the first time. 
And so we want to remove that which is not supposed to be there and replace it with God's best, and that way we don't go back into all of that. Now, notice verse five, he said, or verse 1 of chapter 5. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children. That word therefore harkens back to everything he's just said. And he's saying in light of the fact that since you became a new person at the moment that you were saved, you are to remove by your choice those things that do not belong there and replace them with the lifestyle of a new man. And since then, being new, you are to verse 32, be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this ye know that no whoremonger nor unclean person or covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath, that means the judgment of God upon the children of disobedience." The Apostle Paul here lists out the behavior of those who are darkness. The people who are darkness. A lost man is not in darkness, he is darkness. And he flatly states that they are, are under God's judgment and will not have eternal life. Now he's not saying that they're going to go to hell because they do these things. He's stating that they do these things because they're lost. You do not become lost by doing bad things, and you do not go to heaven for doing good things. No one has gone to heaven or hell because of what they do. Good people don't go to heaven because they're good, and bad people don't go to hell because they're bad. You go to heaven or hell depending on what you do with Jesus. That's it. Salvation is by grace through faith plus nothing. The lost are not in darkness. As I said, they lost our darkness, and because the lost man is darkness, he does dark things. The Christian does, at times, fail. And as we fail occasionally to live as God intends, we do so in the light. And when we do that, we repent of it. We confess it. We repent of it. Ask God to cleanse us. And we don't make a practice of it. 1 John 3, 9 talks about the Christian does not make a practice of sinning. He that is born of God doth not commit sin. And the word commit doesn't mean never commit. You know that. It has the idea of committing to it, following it through, continually practicing it. That's why Paul says in verse 7, Be not ye therefore partakers with them. Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, commands these Christians and us not to participate in the dark things that the lost do. Then he reminds them and us in verse 8 that at one time they and we, if you're saved, were darkness. He says, For ye were sometimes, that means in the past, darkness. But now ye are, are ye, pardon me, light in the Lord. Walk, the idea is there's a colon there, connects you up. Therefore, walk as children of light. We are no longer darkness. 
If you're saved, you are no longer headed to hell. Amen? And you are in Jesus, and when God sees you, He doesn't see you in your sins. He sees you in His Son. And His Son is the light of the world, capital L. Now that we're saved, Paul says, we are to live like saved people live. That's the word walk. Now, in verse 9, he gives us three characteristics of a spirit-filled Christian. If you've got your Bible and a ballpoint pen and a place to take some notes, you ought to mark this somehow. Always bring a Bible, a ballpoint pen, and a sweet spirit to church. And write things down. Take notes. Why? Because you will forget. If, you know, and the older I get, the more I realize how easy it is to forget. And I've said this before, and I'll say it again, that old hackneyed... Uh, once I thought a thought, but the thought I thought was not the thought I thought. Now when I think a thought, I write it down so that I know the thought I thought was the thought I thought. And the older I get, the more I realize how true that is. Write it down. If you don't, the devil will snatch away what you hear in church this evening. Take some notes. Three characteristics of the Spirit-filled Christian. Verse 9, For the fruit of the Spirit, capital S, is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Notice the first characteristic of the Spirit-filled Christian is goodness. Now before I go into that, before I forget, let me tell you what a Spirit-filled Christian is and what a Spirit-filled Christian is not. A Spirit-filled Christian, and we'll do it in reverse, is not a person who struts into the presence of God is impressed with their walk with God and wants you to be as impressed with them as, as, they want you, as they think God is. They are not someone who's had some kind of a hyper-emotional experience and the result is therefore they are filled with the Spirit of God. Every single person is who's saved is indwelt by the Spirit of God. But not all are controlled by, the Bible phrase is filled with, the Spirit of God. Well, how do I get filled with the Spirit of God? Well, again, you have to be saved. Number two, as we mentioned this morning, you have to be what the old timers used to call prayed up. That means con confess all known sins. Now, you can't confess a sin that you've done that you don't know you've committed. And that's when you say, now, Lord, if there's anything else I've done, I don't realize, help me to understand. But confess every sin that you know you've committed in thought, word, or deed. And agree with God that it's wrong. That's called repentance, part of it. And then turn from that to the Lord Jesus. Replace that with walking with Jesus and say, Lord, I ask you to wash me and cleanse me and fill me with your spirit. I yield myself to you. You might feel something. You might not. You might get quiet. You might get loud. You might weep. You might shout. But everybody's different. Don't think that the, that the evidence of you being filled with the Holy Spirit is something prescribed by man. We live in the charismatic center of the universe. You all aware of that? I mean, if there is a charismatic center of the universe, it's right here in Tulsa area. And I grew up over in Jinx and a lot of good friends went to school with. You know, were involved in that movement. Had parents that taught at Oral Roberts University and other places and I had to learn real early as a Baptist boy trying to follow the Bible what this matter of the filling of the Holy Spirit is and is not and when I come in contact with someone who believes that the filling of the Spirit of God is evidenced by what they call it's not biblical but what they call speaking in tongues I have learned to ask them who was the most spirit filled person ever to walk the earth 
And when they finally give me all the wrong answers, would you agree that it was Jesus? Yes. All right. If Jesus, and is Jesus the same yesterday, today, and forever? Oh, absolutely, they say. The charismatic preachers love to quote that. All right, if Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and Jesus was the most spirit-filled man to ever walk the earth, and if speaking in what they call tongues is evidence of that filling, why do we not have Jesus doing it even once? And they look at me like Ralph Cramden did to Alice and go, Hamana, 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 Hamana. You see, everybody feels something different. Everyone senses the Spirit of God different. In fact, I don't think it's the same any single time you sense God's Spirit in your heart. Sometimes you will cry, as I said. Sometimes you'll get calm. Sometimes you'll sing. Sometimes you'll shout. When we're singing in church, I would love for you to be more spirit-filled. Sing out. Sing out. Don't sing out of the back of your head. Sing out of the front of your head. Sing. Make a joyful noise. If you can't carry a tune, if we gave you a bucket with a lid and you sing in the cracks of the piano, make a joyful noise. Sing. And the Christian who is, however, the Christian who is filled with the Spirit of God may or may not do these things, but he will be under God's control. Reading the word, hearing God speak from this page and in his heart, in conjunction with the page, never apart from the book, never. And that is a spirit-filled Christian, following the Lord. So the first evidence of that is goodness. That has to do with benevolence, seeing a person in need and moving to meet that need. It may be material. It may be spiritual. It may be emotional. If you are moved by the Spirit of God to meet the need of someone, do it. When I was younger, I stopped for hitchhikers and people who were broken down on the road all the time. My mother, who is now with the Lord, would just cringe. I would come home and say, She's, where have you been? And I, no cell phones, no pagers, nothing, you know. Where have you been? And my mother, if I wasn't when I was supposed to be home at the prescribed time, you know, after about 30 minutes, she starts calling the hospitals to find I've had a wreck, you know. And so she'd say, where have you been? Well, I stopped and helped somebody. Oh, you can't do that. Somebody will hit you in the head. Well, they never did. But these days I'm a little more careful. I get on the cell phone and call, you know, and ask for some police. Or you just can't, you, they will hit you in the head these days. But I've done that for years. I've picked people up. When I was at Chris, attending Criswell College at First Baptist Church in Dallas, I came out of orchestra rehearsal one Thursday night, and a, and a boy was there, young boy, maybe 16, 15, and he w was said, do you have any money for food? And you know what that's like. They're always on the corners. And God just impressed on my heart to take him and get him some food. I wasn't going to give him any money. I had to learn that the hard way. And I took him down to the Burger King, which was the closest thing to the church in downtown Dallas, which is right by the bus station. And I got him two Whopper, Whoppers with cheese. They had a special or something. And he was, must have been hungry because he ate them like they were just gone. I took him to his home in Oak Cliff, and he wouldn't let me, I was trying to, and he wouldn't let me take him there exactly. He dropped me off, I dropped him off in an empty home, which I'm sure was a crack house. And he promised to come to church the following Sunday, and I waited for him, waited for him right there. He didn't show up. So the next week, on Thursday night, I went looking for him. 
and he wasn't there. I couldn't find him. A few weeks later, I was pulling out of a barbecue place where I got a sandwich for lunch, and I heard a, someone yelling, yelling, hey, man, man. I'd given him a gospel tract, you know, when he left, and, and when I left him there the other day, the week before, two weeks before. And he said, hey, man, hey, man. And here comes this boy, and he's running, and the girl's with him. Turns out he's nearly 20, but he looked just so very young. And he said, uh, I wanted to tell you what happened. He said, the next day, or the next Sunday after you picked me up, I went to church back with my grandma. Grandma goes to church. And I got saved. And this girl I've been living with, we're now engaged and we're going to get married. All because you just sense God speaking to your heart. You don't know what you do. You pass out a gospel tract. We give gospel tracts every Sunday morning to everybody present. You take a gospel tract and you place it there. You don't know what God will do with that. Goodness. I'm not saying look at me. I'm just saying that's how I apply that. You sense the Spirit of God to move and help someone. Maybe emotionally or just to put your arm around them and love them. The second characteristic is righteousness. The fruit of the Spirit is, is in all goodness and righteousness. Now that has to do with righteous deeds done for the glory of God. It means to live a kindly life. The kind of life that pleases God. Speaking of First Baptist Dallas in the orchestra there when I played there years ago, we had a trombone player named Monk Harris. And Monk's with the Lord, been there with him for many years now. And Monk was a godly, godly man. He was a general contractor and built homes in all over Dallas. And he was quite wealthy, but you wouldn't know it. He didn't live that way. He was just as comfortable driving his old truck and wearing work clothes as he was, you know, wearing a tuxedo at some function. And we had a young man in the orchestra there who was an orphan. Grew up in the orphanage way out in East, Tech, in, in East Dallas. His name was Carrie Eaves, and Carrie sat next to me playing a bass trombone. I play my tube, and Carrie and I became good friends. Well, Carrie was playing this junker. You know what I mean by junker? I mean, it was just a junker. And Monk had a beautiful King 3B Sterling Silver Bell that he played. He played with Tommy Dorsey. He was an incredible musician. And one day he noticed, Lord laid on his heart, to get Carrie a bass trombone. Carrie was a music intern there, is now a music minister in a church in South Texas. And Monk went and played and picked out the best bass trombone he could find at Brook Mays Music. And he brought it up when Carrie wasn't there and put it in Carrie's instrument locker in the orchestra room before orchestra rehearsal that night. And then Monk sat over from me a little ways and then we came in and Carrie went to it and took the other instrument out and hid it and sat over there and we watched as Carrie opened it up and saw this beautiful case and he opened it up and this great instrument that he's using to praise the Lord with even this very hour and he did no card no name no nothing and he says praise the Lord thank God for whoever gave me this and Monk just beamed That's the kind of life that pleases God. Reaching out to other people. Being sensitive to their spiritual, emotional needs. The characteristic of the Christian is goodness and righteousness and probably most importantly truth. 
has to do with integrity and honesty in all he does. And that brings us to verse 10. Proving what is acceptable to the Lord. Often people ask their pastor, how do I know or how do I find the will of God for my life? I have a job opportunity. How do I know it's God's will? How about when I get married or, or to make some decision in life? How do I know what God's will is for my life in this area? And the answer is actually quite simple. Paul says, walk in the light. This is how you find, this is how you prove what is acceptable unto God doing his will you don't need some kind of sign or wonder or miracle you don't need to spend days and months and years agonizing over something simply live walk under the control of the spirit of god the light capital l of the world jesus christ and if you follow him friend you'll be doing god's will god will reveal to you his will as you walk in Jesus. In other words, just live under the control of the Spirit of God. You see, God reveals His will only to those who are Spirit-filled. He does not reveal it to those who are playing around. This fellow who has one foot in the evil world system and the other foot in God's kingdom will never, ever have God reveal to him His divine will for that fellow's life. Why? Because the professing Christian who has one foot enmeshed in the evil world system that's opposed to God and the things of God. Folks, we live in an upholstered sewer known as the 21st century. You're aware of that. And that evil world system is not talking about the circumference of the earth, but the, the things of this world that are opposed to God and the things of God. And friend, that's just about everything we encounter every week. And the Christian who has his professing Christian who has his foot one foot there and one foot in God's direction supposedly following God he's double-minded and the Bible says he's unstable in all his ways he's not walking in the light proving what is acceptable unto the Lord there are two meanings that we derive from that and I'll give you the second one first the second meaning the secondary meaning is that if we want to do something it is not up to God, it is not up to the pastor, it's not up to your parents to prove to you why it's wrong. So many people say, well, pastor, what's wrong with? What's wrong with? What's wrong with, right? Well, the question is not what's wrong with it. By the way, if you have any question as to what may be wrong with it, it's probably a good idea just to leave it out because more than likely there's something wrong with it. But the, but the burden of proof is not on the pastor or your parents or your husband or your Bible teacher to prove to you why it's wrong. The proof to you and I is to prove to God why it's okay for God to accept it. Well, what do you think about that? You think God would accept that? If, if Jesus walked in the door right there and you were busy doing whatever that thing was, I like to use the jelly bean thing because it won't offend anybody. You know, if the 11th commandment said, thou shalt not eat jelly beans, and you're, you know, you've got a stash of jelly beans in your desk drawer, you know, and you, nobody's looking, you're, you're, you know, just woofing them down. And Jesus walked in and said, what about commandment 11? What would, what would you do? Well, I'd probably spit them out and throw them away. Okay, well then why are you asking me, the pastor, whether what's wrong with jelly beans? You already know. 
We pretty much already know how we're supposed to live. It's interesting, though, we ignore most of it. And most lost people know how Christians are supposed to live. In fact, the lost man knows more about how the Christian is supposed to live than the Christian will admit he's supposed to live. When I was a student at the University of Arkansas, I was knocking on dormitory rooms, witnessing, inviting people to church. And I knocked on a door, and a young man said, well, I don't want, I'm not interested in all that. I said, why? He said, why? He said, there's no difference between you and me. The only difference between you and me is you go to church and, and I don't. And I said, well, you don't know me and I don't know you. And we tried to talk about that. It didn't go very far. He said, listen. And again, he didn't know me. He said, look at the music you listen to. Now, this was 40 years ago. Look at the music that you Christians listen to. If you were really Christians, you wouldn't be listening to the music that I listen to with different words. Interesting that a lost man could say that. We didn't know who I was. Didn't know that that's what I've been saying for 50 years. And yet, he knew more about how Christians should live in the area of music than most Christians will admit. If we want to do something, and it's questionable, it's not up to God or the pastor or anybody else to prove you why it's wrong. It is up to us to prove why God would accept it. The primary meaning of this passage here, the verse 10, which says, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord means that if you're spirit-filled, you will produce fruit, which is, verse 9, goodness, righteousness, and truth. And that's pro that proves you're walking in the light. You have to have those two verses together. As we live under the control of the Spirit of God, we will produce fruit, the Bible says, much more fruit and much fruit. And it all is summarized in these three words goodness righteousness and truth and apart from jesus christ no one has ever done anything good apart from jesus christ none of us have any righteousness and apart from jesus christ none of us know much less speak the truth and as we allow him to live his life through us right the result is that we prove what is acceptable to the lord beautiful passage let's pray